Good morning. You guys doing well? Good to have you with us. Welcome to the Desert Breeze Community Church. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Matthew chapter 7. We'll look at verses 1 through 12. I invite you to bring your Bibles here. Though we do have the, the main uh, text up on the screen, it's really important for you to become familiar with your Bible. If you don't have one, you can pick one up in the information. We'll give you one to take with you and bring back with you. I think I overdosed on pumpkin pie. Oh, man, I just couldn't stay away from it with a whole lot of whipped cream and then chased it with pumpkin spice latte. I mean, everything, everything pumpkin. How many like pumpkin pie? How many like pecan pie? I had some of that too. How many like minced meat pie? Anybody? Oh my goodness, you guys are messed up. Uh, anybody? Okay, yeah, you are too. Uh, my mom likes it too, okay? She likes minced meat, but uh, minced meat pie, what in the world is that? Okay, it's probably good too. I'm not going to try it though. Don't ask me to try it. I'm staying away from it. Hey, we got a great study here this morning. We've been working through the uh, Sermon on the Mount, greatest uh, sermon ever preached. And uh, I I want to re-emphasize this every week. You need to know it. You need to hear it. In fact, you need to hear it every day that that the the Christian life, uh, the gospel, understanding the gospel is it's not uh, good advice on what you must do to make yourself right with God. It is good news about what God has done uh, to make us right with him. And it makes a world of difference to know the difference because most people don't know the difference. And when you talk about the gospel or Christianity, they think it's the first rather than the second. They think it's like, well, I got to get my act together and I need to do these certain things so that then God will accept me. Baloney. That's not the gospel. <clears throat> and when you understand what he's done for you, it is stunningly uh, breathtaking. It's beautiful in so many different ways. I just can't seem to get over it. And, 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 and so I get to do what I love doing. I just tell you about Jesus. Uh, I just love doing that. I love talking about Jesus. And if you're not too thrilled about him, it's probably because you don't know him. Or maybe it's been a while since you've really encountered him or you're not really walking in vital union with him. And uh, so I hope that you get to know him this morning and, and encounter him. Because I'll tell you what, man, he will blow your circuits. I mean, when you get to know him and walk with him, you understand what he's done for you, and it begins to change you. And so that begins to change your life when you begin to understand the grace of God. And it changes you in every area. And this morning, we're going to talk about one of the many areas we've been working on through this series. And the reason why I have to start with that is because we're going to talk about some heavy-duty stuff. We're going to talk about relationships. And how many would say that uh, certainly uh, there's a bit of relational tension that increases within your family around the holidays? Show of hands. Okay, yeah, there's a number of hands there. And so I hope to give you a bit of a remedy for that. And so we're going to kind of work on that a little bit. But you always need to know that the foundation is God's grace. And it's out of his grace and understanding what he's done for us that, that transforms that transforms our lives. Let me read to you a story uh, that will kind of help uh, set this up. This is, uh, it was actually a story here that Ebenezer Baptist Church in Saskatoon, Saskatchewan, 
was the epicenter of a revival that swept much of Canada and portions of the United States in the early 1970s. During the initial days of this movement, two brothers were marvelously reconciled who had not spoken to each other for two years, even though they attended the same church. God broke through their hardness and pride one evening, and they fell sobbing into each other's arms. The church was amazed at the drastic change in the two men, and God greatly used their testimony to spread and deepen the work of revival. Here's uh, where we're headed with our study this morning. Um, Because this world, because you and I, we're made by a triune God. You guys familiar with what we're talking about when we say that God is triune, God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? Because we were made, we were created by a triune God. Loving relationships with God and one another are what life is really all about. And in fact, loving relationships, especially within the family of God, are among our most powerful means of communicating the gospel. In fact, one of the verses I've got there on your notes, First John 4.12, goes like this. Let me put that over here. <clears throat> it goes like this, First uh, John four twelve. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and His love is perfected in us. Pretty profound verse. And so, it's the best way we display, we put on display, God to people is how we relate to one another. Our loving relationships, not only within our biological family, but within our spiritual family. And so the theme of this whole series has been let your light shine before men so that they can see your good deeds and glorify your Father who is in heaven. And one of the ways that we do that, one of the many ways, is just how we we love one another. That people would come in here and they would see how you would relate to your family members and then your spiritual family members and they would go, oh my goodness, I want what you have. I want to know the God that you know because your life is really different from the way that people in this world live. And uh, city on a hill. That's why God has placed us right here on I-17 to be a city on a hill. Thus, that's what this series is about. So that's where we're headed. Would you bow your heads with me? And uh, we're going to pray, and then we'll dive into our text this morning. We're going to be looking at the interpersonal traits of Christians, which is verses 1 and 2, and then uh, the heart that produces those traits, verses 3 through 5, and then where that heart comes from, verses 6 through 11, and then kind of summarize it in verse 12. Let's pray. Glorious Father... It tells us in Ephesians two thirteen through 14 that through the sacrificial love of your son on the cross, we who were once separated from you can now draw near. What an amazing thought. That we can have relationship with the creator and the sustainer of the heavens and the earth because of what Jesus Your son, our Savior, has done on the cross. And through that same cross, the dividing wall of hostility that so easily rises between us and others has been brought down, reconciling us to one another. Father, we confess our failure to get along because it discredits the gospel. But when we reconcile and learn to speak the truth in love to one another, we demonstrate the power of the cross and make it believable to others. So teach us these interpersonal traits of Christians this morning, the heart that produces those traits and where that heart comes from. We pray these things in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. So take a look at this text, uh, starting in uh, Matthew chapter 7, verse 1. 
He says, judge not that ye be not judged. Stop there just for a minute. Everybody look up here. That is probably the most quoted verse in the Bible and the least understood verse in the Bible by people who are non-Christians. Would you guys agree with that? Maybe you don't understand it so much, but you, you hear that quoted a lot. Don't judge me. You're judging me. How many have ever heard that before or maybe had someone say that to you? And so we're going to get to the bottom of that this morning. He's going to give us really a great understanding of it. And as I said, these first two verses are really talking about the interpersonal traits that we have with other Christians. So he says, judge not that ye be not judged, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. And then in verses 3 through 5, he gives us the heart that produces those traits. He says, Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. And then in verses 6 all the way to 11, he really gives us, tells us a little bit of where that heart comes from. So you got the interpersonal traits of Christians, verses 1 and 2, verses 3 through 5. you got the heart that produces those traits. And then where that heart comes from, verses 6 through 11. He says, do not give dogs what is holy and do not throw your pearls before pigs. Wait a minute. I thought he just said judge not. And here it seems as though that he's judging, isn't he? When, he calls, when you call someone a dog or a pig, it sounds like you're judging, doesn't it? I mean, would you agree with me? You're kind of thinking, hey, wait a minute. Didn't you just say judge not? And now he says, hey, don't give, uh, don't give that which is holy to dogs and pearls to pigs. Well, this is brilliant. And this is Hebrew humor. And it's just brilliant teaching by our Savior Jesus to really help us to understand something about our interaction with others. And he says, he says so do not give dogs what is holy and do not throw your pearls before pigs lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds. To the one who knocks it will be open. Or which of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father, who is in heaven, give good things to those who ask him? And then he kind of summarizes it here in verse 12. And he says, So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. How many are familiar with the golden rule? Golden rule, this is it right here, verse 12. Do unto others as you would have them what? Do unto you. Yeah, so he just pretty, pretty much summarizes it right there. And he says, in doing this, you're fulfilling the law and the prophets. This is what the whole Bible is all about. This is the word of the Lord to us this morning. So here we go. Interpersonal traits of Christians, verses 1 and 2. He says, don't judge. What does that word judge mean? Now, anytime you look up a word... In the dictionary, it will typically give you the lexical range of that word. So it'll give you multiple definitions. And so when you look at this, the multiple definitions for judge on a spectrum goes all the way from, on one side, criticize, discern, evaluate, to, on the other end of the spectrum, condemn, punish, destroy, destroy evil. 
So you could summarize it by saying, on one end, it's criticized, and the other end is condemned. So criticize has the idea or discernment or evaluate good versus bad or right versus wrong. When it talks about condemning, the Bible talks about God is coming back to condemn or judge the earth. So you got that broad spectrum. Now, our culture believes it means both. So when people use that, they're saying, hey, you shouldn't, even, you shouldn't even disagree, really. You know, if you don't like the way someone is behaving, then don't, don't say that because that's mean-spirited. That's ugly for you to do that, and that's what our world would say. And uh, in fact, so, the, so our culture believes it means both. Don't criticize or condemn. And our culture is doing the very thing that they are telling others that they shouldn't be doing when they say that. Hey, you shouldn't condemn. Well, you're condemning me by... By saying that I can't, that I shouldn't condemn. Now, what, is, what does Jesus mean by condemn? This is what he means. He means this. You can criticize, and we know that from the fuller context of Scripture. You can criticize, but don't condemn. And the reason why we know that is because of verse 6 where he says dogs and pigs. Because he says don't, don't condemn, don't judge. And yet then he calls a certain group of people, uh, dogs and pigs. So it sounds like he's doing some discerning in that. Now, let me give you some fill in the blanks here. Here's some thoughts to kind of help you to, to apply this to your life. So interpersonal traits of Christians. It doesn't mean that you should never criticize, discern, evaluate someone for believing or behaving badly. That's not what he's talking about there. And, uh, and we know that because in Hebrews 5.14, in fact, the whole Bible is really about discerning right from wrong good from bad, light from darkness. I mean, that's what the whole Bible is about. So he's not talking about that, making a distinction between right and wrong. And of course, we, as I said, the world tends to think that when we do that, we're being mean-spirited. You shouldn't tell those people that they're wrong. And he's saying, well, I'm not talking about that. Um, in fact, Hebrews 5.14 says that you are actually finding yourself to be more mature when you can make that distinction in your life between right and wrong, good and bad. Light from darkness. Proverbs 27, 6. It says this. If you can uh, finish this uh, verse. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Okay. Some of you know that. So faithful are the wounds of a friend. How many have ever been wounded by a friend? And so, so, and in fact, that's how you can... In fact, the, the verse goes on. You know how the rest of that verse goes? Profuse are the kisses of an enemy. So if you're around someone that doesn't ever speak the truth to you, they just want to kiss up to you all the time. They're afraid to rock the boat, don't want to, I want you to be my friend. And they're not speaking truth to you from time to time. They're not stirring up a little bit of conflict in the relationship. They're probably not your friend. They're probably your enemy, actually. Profuse are the kisses of an enemy, but faithful are the wounds of a friend. In fact, it even tells us in Proverbs 27, 17, iron sharpens iron as one person sharpens another. So conflict is not a bad thing. It's actually a very good thing. It really forces us to have to take a, a look inside in our lives. And it gives opportunity for greater levels of intimacy with the other person and maturity. We get to grow up. We get to get closer to one another. But it also forces us to look at God and get closer to God and grow up in our relationship with him also. And so it doesn't mean that you should never criticize, that is, discern, evaluate someone for believing or behaving badly. Here's another verse that I found really fascinating here. And I think it's on your notes. It's uh, 1 Corinthians 5, 12 through 13. 
For what have I to do with judging outsiders? This is the Apostle Paul writing. Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? So he's making a distinction. He's saying, hey, we, we are within the church are to judge one another, discern right from wrong. And then he says, God judges those outside, purge the evil person from among you. So there was someone that was living a blatant, promiscuous life within the church there in Corinth. And he said, what are you guys doing? Don't you guys see what you're doing? A little leaven leavens the whole batch. Within that context, he's saying, you need to bring church discipline. You need to confront this person. But it's not your job to go out and try to clean up the world, is what he's saying. So we have responsibility and accountability to one another within the family of God, within the church. But when it comes to outsiders, it's not our job to confront unbelievers for, for believing and behaving like unbelievers. Unbelievers are going to behave and believe, believe and behave like unbelievers. And so basically what he's saying here, and there's, a, there's appropriate ways, and we're going to talk about it as we work through this, that we respond. But our primary responsibility and accountability is with other believers. That's the point that he's making. Here's the next point on your notes. The difference between criticizing and condemning is mainly attitude. Romans 14.10, he says, why do you judge your brother? And he almost sounds like he's saying, hey, wait a minute, you're not even supposed to judge your brother. And yet, he's talking about a way that we judge our brother. Why do you despise him or why do you look down on him? So he's talking about an attitude in which we would judge him or discern him. And that would be that self-righteous, condescending, holier-than-thou kind of attitude. And it's not, not judging others isn't about not having beliefs and challenging someone in regards to those beliefs. It's about how our beliefs lead us to treat people who disagree with us. It's really about our attitude towards them and how we go about it. That takes us to the next point. When you criticize, is it to develop, is it to develop or to destroy the relationship? So when you're holding a brother or sister accountable and you're calling them out because of maybe an attitude or a belief or something, how are you doing it? Is it in an effort to build a bridge or drive a wedge? How are you doing it? So the point that he's making here is that Jesus is saying that you should never criticize in such a way as to alienate, punish, destroy, or condemn. And so when we read this in the fuller context of Scripture, we know that we are to speak the truth in love. That's how we should always interact, is speak the truth in love with one another. Ephesians 4.15 says that's how we grow. So we grow and mature, that we need people in our lives. In fact, by the way, listen to me. You need to know this. Your relationship with God, your relationship with others, it's based on mutual giving and receiving of what? Love and truth. If my wife cannot be honest with me about issues, we're not going to get close, and, 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 that, and, and, and when she is honest with me, it needs to be in the context of what? Love. She needs to know more than anything. I love her. So therefore, creating a safe place for her to be able to talk to me about issues in our relationship. So when you look at your relationship with God and others, there should be this mutual giving and receiving of love. I ought to be able to feel safe enough to be able to share my heart with you and you, me. And in the, the kind of the foundation of that should be love. There's that safety and that security to be able to open Openly share. And the Bible says that's where you grow, you mature. In fact, when you can't do that, Ephesians 4.25, he says it, it's, it's when, you, when you're not honest and open, you don't have that mutual giving and receiving of love. Uh, there's almost kind of like an amputation. There's this, you're driving wedges. You're not building bridges. You're not going to experience the intimacy and the relationship that I have created you for. Not only with me, but with one another. And, um, and in fact... 
When you confront someone and you begin to talk to someone, what would be the goal of that? Why would, why would you want to have friends, if it says faithful are the wounds of a friend, what, what would the wounds be like? What would that look like if they wounded you? What would they primarily be concerned with? Yeah, that, that's good. Character? Here's the character that they would ultimately be wanting to develop within you. In fact, Paul makes it very clear in 2 Corinthians one twenty four. We work with you for your joy. For your joy. That's what you want in them. You want, to, want them to find their deepest delight in God. You want, to, want them to see more than anything. Because sin interferes with that. Sin is what we do when we're not satisfied with God. And so what you're wanting them to do is to find their deepest satisfaction in Him. Listen, He's our, he's our most satisfying reality. Now, I overdosed on a lot of pumpkin pie and it was really good. But there's nothing in that pumpkin pie that can compare to my relationship with God. Or even that, uh, that pumpkin spice latte. Or there's no experience I've ever had that even comes close to Jesus and experiencing him. And by the way, all of that is a gift from him and ultimately a pointer to him. Never for me to terminate on the created thing, but to let that roll on up for that to be a worship experience with him. Otherwise, it becomes idolatry. And so... The bottom line is that the reason why we would call each other on the carpet, so to speak, and do that with utmost love is so that they could begin to be captivated with the beauty and the glory of who Jesus is. And as I said earlier, if you're not too wound up and excited about Jesus, it's probably because you really don't know him. Maybe you're not walking in vital union with him. I'm telling you what, he's the most satisfying reality you will ever experience. There's no gift that you could ever receive at Christmas time that even can come close to him. Believe me, it is amazing. And so ultimately, when I would challenge you or you would challenge me, it would be with the effort of stirring up within us greater appetite for God that we would begin to see him more clearly. Because that's ultimately where we're going to find our deepest satisfaction. Now, let me summarize all of this, okay? So we can move on, summarize all of this. So if we were to add this to what we've talked about in the past, we talked about uh, being, uh, being a philanthropist when it comes to our love and a few weeks back, and we mentioned Matthew 5, where it talks about even loving our enemies. So we could summarize all of what I just said by saying this. This means treating every person in every encounter as an infinitely precious being in the image of God, never demeaning, Never demeaning and condescending in any way, but being so melt-in-your-mouth sweet that though they may disagree with you and you disagree with them, they cannot deny your love for them. So that would, be, that would be the goal. That's what he's saying when he says, judge not, lest you be judged. It really comes down to how am I approaching this person? Though I may call them on the carpet, they need to know that that's saturated with my love for them and my respect for them. Can you see the difference that that would make in a marriage relationship or even in a church setting? That first and foremost, they knew, I know this person loves me. I disagree with them, but man, I know they love me. So it takes a lot of work to get to that place within a marriage relationship where there's that safety of sharing um, love and truth, mutual sharing and giving of, of love and truth. Okay, let's go on now. So where does the, we got to go a little bit deeper into this, this text. So what is the heart that produces those traits? And we'll look at that in verses 3 through 5. So those are the, those are the traits, you might say, uh, 
interpersonal traits of Christians. So the heart that produces those traits, here's the next fill in the blank. Sin stuck in our soul distorts our perspective. And we see that in verse 3. Notice what he says. Why do you see the speck in the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye. This is a bit of uh, Bible humor. So the idea is that I'm trying to help you get the speck out of your eye, and I've got a big old telephone pole in my eye. That would be weird, wouldn't it? And that's the point that he's making. I'm swinging this thing around. I've got this thing in my eye. Here, let me help you with your speck. And so obviously, that blurs my ability to see. So sin stuck in our soul distorts our perspective. And uh, by the way, yep, everybody here has sin stuck in their soul. Everybody. Every one of us have issues that we're still working through in our life. If you think otherwise, you're deceived. You're messed up. Just like me. And you're desperate for Jesus. See, there's really only two types of people. There are those that are messed up and know it and those that are messed up and don't know it, okay? And, and, and in that being messed up, it, it should make you desperate for Jesus because that's a, that's a perfect place to be because in your weakness, that's where you're going to find amazing strength in him. And so that's why it says, for all of sin and fall short of the glory of God. That's, that's us. That's all of us. In fact, what does that mean? We fail to apprehend how beautiful and desirable God is. We fail to, to apprehend, to fully see how desirable and how beautiful God is. And in fact, with that, we don't desire God above anything else. I mean, I forgot to bring my phone in here right now because the Cardinals are playing right this very second. And it's obvious that you guys aren't Cardinal fans. Because, okay, could you go ahead and run that ticker tape on the bottom of the screen so we could check out to see what the score is? Because, hey, they're, they're looking pretty good right now, you know? Not right now, but they're, you know, in their season. And so, hey, you know, did you guys know that they're playing right now? How many knew that they're playing right now? How many are not studying your Bible right now, but you've got your little screen on the Cardinals? That's what I was afraid of, Tammy. Who else is doing that? Joe, okay. Okay, would you guys all come up forward? We're going to pray for you right now. No, no. You know, see, the, the thing is, is that I can get really excited about the Cardinals or any other team out there that I'm rooting for. How about that Alabama getting beat? That was good. I love seeing them get beat. Sorry if you're an Alabama fan. Auburn. Was it an Auburn that beat them? Did you see that? How many saw that game? Oh, there I, I'm chasing rabbits, aren't I? But that gets me excited, but not near as excited as, as Jesus. But, yeah, but, but, hey, listen, I'm just like you. I, I kind of lose track from time to time. I get distracted. Those games, those things, pumpkin pie. Looks more desirable than Jesus. I mean, we all experience that. We all feel that. That's the battle. That's why he says, for we all fall short of the glory of God. We don't understand just how desirable he is. And we, we fail to see that and we fail to live for his glory. And so when you have something in your eye, it destroys your ability to see. We all have stuff in our eye. For instance, a guy who has been hurt by a woman tends to treat all women in a certain way because of his past hurt. And, uh, and the same thing goes for, for women. I don't think there's been that many women that have been hurt by guys, though, really. I don't know. Yeah, right. Yeah, that's probably that way more so than the other way. Yeah, yeah. 
Some of you women, oh, yeah, that's right. Hey, we've all been hurt. Listen, we've all been hurt in a relationship. And if you don't get healed up over that, you're going to carry it with you into the next relationship. It's called baggage. And so that's that sin stuck in our soul that messes things up in our lives and we don't always respond to people appropriately. Or it could be that you were raised by an an abusive or absentee father and that has shaped your perspective of fatherhood and immediately you transfer that over to Father God and you're just not too fond of him, quite frankly. It's because you've been shaped by that upbringing. That's that sin stuck in the soul. Here's the next one. Everyone needs help to get that soul-stuck sin out. Everyone needs help. Look at what he says in verse 4. He says, Or how can you say to your brother, Let me take the speck out of your eye when there is the log in your own eye? So we all need help. And how many have ever got something stuck in your eye? Show of hands. Got something stuck in your eye. Okay. How many have ever had it so bad that you had to go to the ER? Okay, some of you that work construction, I've had that twice. It's not fun, not a fun thing. And so if you went into the ER to get something stuck out of your eye, something stuck in your eye, what would you say if the doctor came in there and says, okay, let me see if I can get that thing out of there. What would you do? Yeah, you better run. That's scary. What is this anyway? It's a hammer, screwdriver, channel locks. That's all I know about those things. I know their name, but, but no, no, no. In fact, when I went in, they put some dye in my eye. They opened up my eye wide. They tried to flush it out. They were very delicate. They, they even used things like little tissue. They would use tissue. They were very careful. It was very delicate. And they would even use like a Q-tip. They were looking because I didn't want them digging around and doing damage to my eye. Could it be... Could it be that when people get close to us and they're wanting to share their heart with us and they're trying to work through that sin stuck in their soul, this junk in their eye, that we would do this. We pull out stuff like this and try to help them. Hey, we'll help you out. Come on over here. I can help you get that sin out of your soul. No wonder people want to go, whoa, I'm not going to church. Because every time I go to church, they're like this. Ow, I just hit my hand. I'm going to stop doing that. Leave those things down there. Okay. I I mean, think about that. that. I think he's trying to get a point across. In the eye? Oh, my goodness, that's delicate. Don't do damage. I got to use the eye. And I've seen many times where the church has done damage to people. And so when you see someone kind of defensive, drawing back, don't take it personal. Maybe they've been hurt in the past. Just say, hey, man, I, don't, I love you. I want the best for you. Let's, let's talk about it. Be a good listener and kind of walk through that process with them and understand that, in fact, it has to, has to do with an attitude. In fact, Galatians 6, 1 through 2. In fact, write that down. That's not on your notes. I've got Hebrews three twelve through 13. And I'll let you read that on your own. But Galatians 6, 1 through 2 puts it this way. Take care, brothers, lest there, there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the Lord. Oh, that's Hebrews three twelve through 13. 
But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. But let me read to you Galatians 6, 1 through 2. Brothers, if anyone is caught in, in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. In a spirit of gentleness. Don't get the hammer and the screwdriver out and channel locks. Get the Q-tip out. It's delicate. It says, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Keep watch on yourself in that. So take a look at the next point. If your soul stuck sin doesn't look bigger to you than others, then you won't be able to help others with theirs. And so, uh, so that's all part of it. This is the heart, uh, the heart that produces these traits, these interpersonal traits of Christians. And so verse 5, he says, You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Verse uh, 1 John 1.8, it says, If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. I've always loved that verse, because I always know when I'm in a small group and someone kind of comes off with this self-righteous holier-than-thou, like, I've never struggled with anything in my life. It's like... Here, I've got a verse for you. <laughs> if you claim to be without sin, you deceive yourself and the truth is not in you. Welcome to our small group. <laughs> um, I mean, it's one of those verses just like, ah, you're jacked up, I'm jacked up, we're all jacked up, we all need Jesus. Yes, we do. Okay, so that's, I mean, that's really what that verse is saying. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Here's what I find fascinating too is in 1 Timothy 1.15, the guy who wrote two-thirds of the New Testament had the guts to say, I'm the chief of sinners. I'm first and foremost, I'm front of the line of sinners. Isn't that amazing? So if your soul-stuck sin doesn't look bigger to you than others, then you won't be able to help others with theirs. And quite frankly, one of the reasons why I like to hang out with you guys is because you make me feel a lot better about my sin. (laughs) You guys are so messed up that when I see how messed up you are, I go, man, am I glad that I'm not like them. I am so much more together than they are. Praise you, Jesus. That's messed up, isn't it? And yet that's, that would be a self-righteous, holier-than-thou attitude. In fact, I think that's the reason why we like watching reality TV. Because, oh my goodness, look at that train wreck. Oh, those people are messed up. Well, at least we're not that messed up. Mm, that's questionable. Who in the heck are you comparing yourself to? I mean, so... Uh, The point is, is that really, he says, you should be far more aware of your own sins than you are others. He's saying, hey, you got a log in your own eye. And in fact, your sins should look like a plank compared to their speck. If you're really walking with Jesus and you're in touch with your own sins. This is what I have found is that the more, the closer I get to Christ... The more I see my own flaws and sins and the more precious, electrifying, and amazing God's grace appears to me. And the more I am able to exercise this perfect balance between truth and grace with others. Um, The more I begin to see my dire condition apart from Jesus. And then add to that the magnitude of his provision. Oh my goodness, unspeakable and glorious joy. And that's how I can always tell when someone's uh, really getting close to Jesus is they, they, they see their sinfulness. They recognize it. There's no it's holier-than-thou condescension and how they approach 
other people. But, but that's not often how we live. And it's because it really shows how messed up our hearts are. And uh, we're, not, we're not walking with Jesus and allowing him to expose our sinfulness and so that we can consistently run into his arms. And therefore, we're not really good at speaking the truth in love. We don't do a very good job with that. And, uh, and really, all of us could be categorized in one of two categories. It's kind of a big generalization that we all tend to be either feelers or fixers when it comes to our relationships with each, other's, with each other. Feelers are all love and no truth. You know, and, and, and you see churches like this, too. They're all, all about love, all about love. Let's not talk about anything negative here. Let's just talk about love. Oh, we don't talk about sin around here. There's enough sin out there in the world. We're only going to talk about nice things. That's the feelers. And then there's the fixers. It's all about truth, you sinners. And uh, it's all truth and no love. And then we kind of justify it by saying, well, I'm just a straight talker. That's just how I am. Well, that's a nice way to say, you know, that you're abusive. And you're all truth and no love. You're more of a fixer. Oh, well, I'm a peacemaker. That's what I am. And that's a nice way to put it, that you're basically a coward Welcome to Desert Breeze, <laughs> you coward, you fixers and feelers. And a coward is just something that's all love and no truth. Here's what's amazing about the cross, though. Um, Paul said in, in um, Galatians 6.14, may I never boast except in the cross of Jesus Christ, to whom the world is crucified to me and I to the world. So he's just like, oh, he, he lived his whole life just stunned by the reality of the cross. And there's two messages that you need to get from the cross. The cross basically, and you've heard me say this many times before, and you really need to get it deep into your heart and live this out because this is what will change, really transforms your life, is that, that I was so sinful Jesus had to die for me. So when you live in the reality of that, how could you ever be condescending to anybody? You were headed for hell except for the fact that he rescued you. And so that, that eliminates any towering, and that gives you that, that love you need to show others. But then it doesn't stop there. The other side of the truth, the other side of the coin, so to speak, is that I, I'm not only, I was so sinful that he, he had to die for me, but I'm so loved that he wanted to die for me. And, and then that gives me the confidence to speak the truth, when otherwise you might reject me if I speak the truth to you, but I've got to be okay with that. But I've got his... I got his approval. Listen, if you got his approval, you got his love, oh my goodness, you could face anything. And that's, that's what the cross does. And so let's, let's elaborate on it a little bit more. Verses 7, 6 through 11, where that heart comes from. Where does that heart come from? This is what it is. It's a magnificent obsession with a heavenly treasure, Christ, beside which everything else in life is of no value. And that's a paraphrased statement by John White from his book, The Cost of Commitment. So in verse 6, when he says the pearl, what is he talking about? Don't throw pearls before swine. Don't give that which is holy to dogs. What is he talking about there? Guess what he's talking about there? He's talking about Jesus. The treasure, our treasure. The pearl is the gospel of Jesus Christ coming to this world to save us by his grace. I've got this on your notes. I needed to add another verse. I think I've got Matthew 13, 45 through 46. It needs to be 44. 44 is my life verse, Matthew 13, 44. Basically, it goes like this. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found, and in his joy, he sells all that he has and buys that field. 
So here's the point. A person who grasps the gospel is willing to give up everything to have it. And then he's making this contrast between others. Some see the gospel as beautiful. Others see the gospel as useful. And those that see the gospel as useful would be in the category of dogs and pigs. That they would trample on the pearl because they don't see the value of it. I mean, you pour some pearls into the dog dish. Dog's not going to know what to do with it. Pour them into my dish. I know what to do with them. You know, give them to me. But see, I have a, I have a heart and a value for those pearls. And that's what the point that he's saying is that there are people out there that want to use God. And then there are those that encounter God and want God. They don't find God useful. They find God beautiful. That's the Christian life. If you, ever, if you don't ever make the move from useful to beautiful, I am not really even sure if you're a Christian. I think that you're going to defect from the faith, certainly, because when things aren't happening the way you think that they should happen, it's probably because you have failed to make that gap from useful to beautiful. And, you, and when you do that, it doesn't matter what goes down in your life because you have him. You have him and he is more than all you'll ever need. He's amazingly beautiful. But so he, so he makes that, that distinction between, being, between the two. Hey, God helps me. The reason why I go to church is because my business is successful. And what if it isn't? You're going to quit church? You're going to quit God? Well, then it sounds like he was just useful to you. You've missed the most important thing about the Christian life. It's a magnificent obsession with a heavenly treasure beside which everything else in life is of no value. And then he continues and he helps us to understand, well, what does that mean? What is this treasure? And, and then in verses 7 through 11, he says, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be open. And then he says, uh, in fact, literally he's just saying, ask and keep on asking. Seek and keep on seeking. Make this the trajectory of your life. Make him the passion, the purpose, and the pursuit of your life. And then he says, which of you, know, which of you if your kids ask for bread, will give him a stone? And which of you, if your kids ask for a fish, will give him a, a snake or a serpent? And he says, if you, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more does your Father in heaven Desire to give good gifts to you. And this is the point. In God's fatherly love, he will neither neglect or abuse, but give you the acceptance, security, and significance your heart longs for. See, the gospel frees you to love people who hate you without needing love from them in return. All the love you need, you have in Jesus. The gospel frees you to be other-centered because you already have your treasure the love of the Father through the sacrifice of the Son and applied to our hearts through the Holy Spirit is the love you and I have been looking for all of our lives. And if you have a great marriage relationship or a good significant other relationship, that's a dim glimpse of what you can have in Jesus. That's just the bottom line. And that's the point. I had, uh, had a birthday this last week, and I'm, uh, I had a lot of nice things said. And uh, I celebrated uh, 47. And uh, you guys don't look at me like that. And you guys laugh. That really hurt me. That really hurt my heart right then. I don't know what I'm going to do with that. I'm going to... Well, okay, I'm 57. Okay, that doesn't surprise you. No, we thought you were much older than that. Uh, and so... Uh, 
had some get-togethers and had some fun, got some great cards. But I think the highlight, one of the highlights was actually uh, my little grandson, Cohen, who's five years old. He just had to give me this birthday card that he had made. And on the outside, said, Happy Birthday, Grandpa, just as a five-year-old would write it. And then as I opened it up on the inside, it was this big old football drawn out there. And it was so sweet. But what was so amazing about within that football, there was $20. And it made my heart melt. I was like, and he stood there. He says, Grandpa, Grandpa, open it up. Open it up, Grandpa. And then I opened it up. He goes, that's $20, Grandpa. You can buy tools with that. You can buy clothes. You can buy. And I go, oh, dude, you have me. I'm melted. And that's really what all my grandkids do to me when I see them. Because when I, when I see them, oftentimes I say, Grandpa! And they'll, they'll run into my arms and I hug on them and I love them. But I was, as I was thinking about that, I was just thinking, okay, dude, you want to go to Disney World? We're going right now. <laughs> and we'll do any, I'll do anything for you. Man, he got my heart. And then I immediately started thinking about my relationship with... And that's what he's saying. When, seek me. When you ask... Keep on asking. Knock, keep on knocking. Seek, keep on seeking. Oh my goodness, do you have any idea of your daddy's love for you and what he wants to do in your life? I mean, he wants to, he'll go, he went to extreme measures to to rescue you and love you. Won't he take care of all of the other issues in your life? Yes! He is madly in love with you. That's the point. And when you begin to have that kind of love in your heart, that's the reason why it changes the way you relate to others. You can take the hits in life and kind of work through them and hold people accountable for them and, and, and do what you need to do. And that's, it was just, it was pretty amazing. And, and so this brings us to the last point, big point, And I'm going to read the point and then I'm going to take, it's going to take a few more minutes to get, get to the end of this message because I've got a really important, very important uh, story to read to you. And I think it's going to, I'm going to try to get through it without crying but uh, it's a phenomenal story. But here's the point. Therefore, you will love people where they are and share truth with them at the rate that they can receive it. Now, this is pretty, pretty profound, and you need to understand it. So verse 6, when he says, the pig and the dog. So the pig and the dog are not at fault. They are just responding consistent with their nature. And so it's the fault of the one who is forcing pearls on them. What I'm saying here is that we need to practice Colossians 4, 5 through 6. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Let me say it again. I said it a few weeks ago. You'll continue to hear me say it uh, regularly around here. The essence of the Christian message is not behave. Come on. Get your act together. It's not behave, but behold It's in the beholding that changes our behavior. The biggest problem with outsiders to the faith is not that they are sinners, but that they don't know the Savior. So what I'm saying is don't antagonize unbelievers for thinking and acting like unbelievers. Of course they're going to act like that. Show them Jesus. 
and at the rate and the pace that God is working in their life. You might even have to back off and continue to pray for a season. The belief that I must clean up to merit God's presence isn't Christianity. It's his presence by grace through faith in Christ that does the cleaning up. It brings the life change. This means that the church will be filled with immature and broken people who still have a long way to go emotionally, morally, and spiritually, full of messy people in process. So here, let me end with a, with a story here. Okay, we're almost done. And then we can go home and watch the Cardinals game. This is from Christianity Today. It's called My Train Wreck Conversion. As a leftist lesbian professor, I despised Christians, then somehow became one. Rosaria Champagne Butterfield. And you can also go to desiringgod.org and listen to the interview. Phenomenal. Or you can go to YouTube. And watch it as she gives her testimony. I'm going to read it. Just kind of read through it. I've given you some excerpts. This is from Christianity Today. This is what she says. Now listen up. You got to get this. Because this, is, this pretty much summarizes everything I've talked to you about this morning. And listen to what she says. As a leftist lesbian professor, I despise Christians. Then somehow I became one. The word Jesus stuck in my throat like an elephant tusk. No matter how hard I choked, I couldn't hack it out. Those who professed the name commanded my pity and wrath. As a university professor, I I tired of students who seemed to believe that knowing Jesus meant knowing little else. Christians in particular were bad readers, always seizing opportunities to insert a Bible verse into a conversation with the same point as a punctuation mark, to end it rather than deepen it. Stupid, pointless, menacing, that's what I thought of Christians and their God, Jesus, who in paintings looked as powerful as a Breck shampoo commercial model. As a professor of English and women's studies on the track to becoming a tenured radical, I cared about morality, justice, and compassion, fervent for the worldviews of Freud, Hegel, Marx, and Darwin. I strove to stand with the disempowered. I valued morality, and I probably could have stomached Jesus and his band of warriors if it weren't for how other cultural forces buttressed the Christian right. Pat Robertson's quip from the 1992 Republican National Convention pushed me over the edge. Feminism, he sneered, encourages women to leave their husbands, kill their children, practice witchcraft, destroy capitalism, and become lesbians. Indeed, the surround sound of Christian dogma cummingly with Republican politics demanded my attention. After my tenure book was published, I used my post to advance the understandable allegiances of a leftist lesbian professor. My life was happy, meaningful, and full. My partner and I shared many vital interests, AIDS, activism, children's health, and literacy. Golden Retriever Rescue, our Unitarian Universalist Church, to name a few. Even if you believe the ghost stories promulgated by Robertson and his ilk, it was hard to argue that my partner and I were anything but good citizens and caregivers. The GLBT, the gay, lesbian, bisexual, transgender community, values hospitality and applies it with skill, sacrifice, and integrity. I launched my first attack on the unholy trinity of Jesus, Republican politics, and patriarchy in the form of an article in the local newspaper about promise keepers. It was 1997. The article generated many responses, so many that I kept a Xerox box on each side of my desk, one for hate mail, one for fan mail. But one letter I received defied my filing system. 
defied my filing system. It was from a pastor of the Syracuse Reformed Presbyterian Church. It was a kind and inquiring letter. Ken Smith encouraged me to explore the kind of questions I admire. How did you arrive at your interpretations? How do you know you are right? Do you believe in God? Ken didn't argue with my article. Rather, he asked me to defend the presuppositions that undergirded it. I didn't know how to respond to it, so I threw it away. Later that night, I fished it out of the recycling bin and put it back on my desk where it stared at me for a week, confronting me with the worldview divide that demanded a response. As a postmodern intellectual, I operated from a historical materialistic worldview, but Christianity is a supernatural worldview. Ken's letter punctured the integrity of my research project without him knowing it. With the letter... Ken initiated two years of bringing the church to me, a heathen. Oh, I had seen my share of Bible verses on placards at gay pride marches that Christians who mocked me on gay pride day were happy that I and everyone I loved were going to hell was clear as blue sky. That is not what Ken did. He did not mock. He engaged. So when his letter invited me to get together for dinner, I accepted. My motives at the time were straightforward. Surely this will be good for my research. Something else happened. Ken and his wife, Floyd, and I became friends. They entered my world. They met my friends. We did book exchanges. We talked openly about sexuality and politics. They did not act as if such conversations were polluting them. They did not not treat me like a blank slate. When we ate together, Ken prayed in a way I had never heard before. His prayers were intimate, vulnerable. He repented of his sin in front of me. He thanked God for all things. Ken's God was holy and firm, yet full of mercy. And because Ken and Floyd did not invite me to church, I knew it was safe to be friends. I started reading the Bible. I read the way, I read the way a glutton devours. I read it many times that first year in multiple translations. At a dinner gathering, my partner and I were hosting. My transgendered friend, Jay, cornered me in the kitchen. She put her large hand over mine. This Bible reading is changing you, Rosaria. She warned with tremors. I whispered, Jay, what if it's true? What if Jesus is a real and risen Lord? What if we are all in trouble? Jay exhaled deeply. Rosaria, she said, I was a Presbyterian minister for 15 years. I prayed that God... I prayed that God would heal me, but he didn't. If you want, I will pray for you. I continued reading the Bible, all the while fighting the idea that it was inspired. But the Bible got to to be bigger inside of me than I. It overflowed into my world. I fought against it with all my might. Then one Sunday morning, I rose from the bed of my lesbian lover, and an hour later... Uh, I did better in the first service, okay? Every time I read this, I read this this last week. Oh, it just stirs me. I rose from the bed of my lesbian lover and an hour later sat in the pew at the Syracuse Reformed Presbyterian Church conspicuous with my butch haircut. 
I reminded myself that I came to meet God, not fit in. The image that came in like waves of me and everyone I loved suffering in hell vomited into my consciousness and gripped me in its teeth. I fought with everything I had. I did not want this. I did not ask for this. I counted the cost, and I did not like the math on the other side of the equal sign. But God's promises rolled in like sets of waves into my world. Then one ordinary day, I came to Jesus, open-handed and naked. In this world of worldviews, in this war of worldviews, Ken was there, Floyd was there, the church that had been praying for me for years was there. Jesus triumphed, and I was a broken mess. Conversion was a train wreck. I did not want to lose everything that I loved, but the voice of God sang a sanguine love song in the rubble of my world. I weakly believed that if Jesus could conquer death, he could make right my world. I drank tentatively at first and then passionately of the solace of the Holy Spirit. I rested in private peace, then community, and together in the shelter of a covenant family. She's now married to a pastor where one calls me wife and many call me mother. She's had kids. It's a pretty amazing story. I have not forgotten the blood Jesus surrendered for this life. And my former life lurks in the edges of my heart, shiny and still like a knife. Heavy duty. That's why we're here on I-17, so that we can let our light shine before men, so that they can see our good deeds and glorify our Father in heaven. Stand with me, please. So let me end with verse 12. He sums it all up right here. Verse 12, the golden rule. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. God bless you.